really need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're gonna have some real healing. We've gotta have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Buffalo What's Next. I'm Angelie Preston. On today's episode, we'll be speaking with Shayla Harris, producer and director of the PBS documentary Making Black America Through the Grapevine. The four-part series is currently airing on WNED-PBS and explores the communities African Americans created in the face of racism and away from the white gaze. Shayla, how are you? I'm doing really well. I'm really excited to talk about this series that I'm really proud of. I feel like it's coming out at a really great time. And um, I'm really excited to talk to this audience here in Buffalo, especially about, about this project. What are you hoping that audiences get from this documentary? Well, I think what I find really compelling about this series is that it's looking at history in a really different way and through a different kind of perspective. Um, It doesn't just focus on what we typically think of African-American history, which is just like struggle, focusing on white racism, you know, overcoming, um, resilience, um, just these kind of obvious tropes. Um, What I think this series really does is show the really complex humanity behind the African-American experience and, um, you know, shows that people lived, they laughed, they loved, they organized, they built community, they innovated culture, all for themselves, not to prove anything to anyone else, but just to see and be seen by other black people, which I think is um, just really beautiful and a a powerful lesson, not just for African-Americans about appreciating that aspect of our history, but um, for other people to kind of see the richness that isn't often shown. In making this documentary, was there anything that surprised you that like you were just like, oh, I didn't know that, or, like, did you, like, learn anything new? Yeah, no, I mean, sometimes you think, like, oh, I've, I've done a couple of documentaries about African-American history, like, I think I know this story, but um, the episodes that I focus on are um, in the 20th and 21st century, and they focus on the period between um, the Great Migration and the Civil Rights Movement, which often gets kind of like dot, dot, dotted in history, you know, especially in African-American history, but that period of the Great Depression, of the the World War II and the post-war era are so fascinating in terms of like everything that's happening in the African-American community. There's labor movements, there's organizing, 
people are going on vacation, they're creating the green book. Um, so they're, and they're being, you know, radicalized in, in other ways after having experienced this great war, but it's also like the second and third generation of folks who have gone to HBCUs who are nurtured in the cradle of that, you know, it's no accident that, um, you know, Martin Luther King and some of the leaders of the civil rights movement all went to HBCUs and sort of had been indoctrinated with that sort of somebodyness. So for me, I felt like that period was like a really good um, period to sort of see the kind of um, impact of some of those earlier social networks that we um, kind of focus on. And so that was really surprising to connect those dots and see how rich those networks are of like the barber shops and the beauty parlors that are like organizing along with, um, you know, the HBCUs and all that stuff. And so that was really exciting and surprising for me. When you, you mentioned one of the tropes um, that um, mainstream media tends to focus on when it comes to black people is, is, is resilience. And, and it is mentioned, um, one of the uh, persons in, in the documentary mentions how we are resilient. We are resilient people. Um, but does it ever get tiring to have to always be resilient and to always, like, that's just supposed to be expected? Does it get tiring of having to see those stories all the time? Yeah, I think it is um, exhausting. And I think that's partly why you see the response in the CPO world to showcase other stories. You know, when you think about the emergence of something like Ebony Magazine, you know, it, it becomes to be famously known for showing these images of Emmett Till's casket in Jet Magazine that sort of like ignited the civil rights movement. But for the very beginning, it was there to showcase black accomplishment, black beauty, Black people going and becoming doctors and dentists and 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 life of leisure and just showing that there's more to the black story than just struggle. Um, so I think that is sort of the <clears throat> through line that we saw in these networks and these organizations in these spaces is that they are trying to create this kind of counter narrative for ourselves that you know maybe everyone else thinks that we're about X, but we all know that we're about Y, Z, A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. Um, so uh, to me, I think that's really powerful to show just the agency within the African-American community to say like, you know, we define ourselves. We don't let other people define us. Your upbringing, we, we touched on it um, at the screening of Making Black America and what um, it, what surprised us is that you're you you're from Buffalo. So my question is, how did your upbringing in Buffalo influence your career path? That's a really great question. So I'm a third generation Buffalonian. Both my parents were born there, and my grandfather on my mother's side was also born there. Um, and so, I, you know, I come from a legacy of sort of great migration families, like um, the other parts of my family that didn't aren't originally from Buffalo came from the South or came from Chicago to come to Buffalo. Um, so I have this sort of diasporic sense of the African-American history is sort of in my bloodstream. And the community that I grew up in um, on the east side of Buffalo was really an example of the sepia world that we're talking about, you know, like 
I had lots of cousins and lots of families and we um, we knew our neighbors who we grew up with. I would like run the streets with my cousins until the streetlights came on and you know, my parents would be playing bid whist and like talking smack and playing records and singing and music and enjoying themselves. Um, and, you know, my grandmother was a nurse by day, but then also was an Eastern star and had leadership positions in um, that organization and was very active. Um, so for me, um, I grew up in this sepia world that really nurtured me and showed me how to live and how to create community. Um, and so, you know, my experience, my first experience outside of that community was actually going to middle school at Frederick Law Olmsted, which is in a completely different neighborhood, completely different community. The first time I actually like went to school with white kids and that was like, I felt like I was able to bring my community with me <laughs> to kind of help navigate that experience and felt really confident in who I was before I had an experience. So in some ways that sort of foundational stuff really shaped me in Buffalo, but then also just the sense of responsibility to the world, visual culture and um, education was always really important. And so I think the work that I do as a filmmaker integrates all of those things. So I want to talk about uh, two things, and you, um, it, this I think the filmmaker uh, is a perfect segue to my next question that I had. Um, is one of the things that you did mention was that you actually were a journalist before you became a filmmaker. So, what made you want to? Uh, what what made you want to do the transition from from telling the story from a journalistic perspective to actually being in the director seat? telling the story. That yeah, way. this is such a great question. Thank you for <laughs> giving me an opportunity to kind of geek out about this. Um, because, uh, you know, I, there is still a part of me that will always be a journalist who's always, you know, curious, um, wanting to find the truth of the matter, really willing to ask the tough questions and learn about things and then share that with an audience. I think that is the most beautiful essence of what it means to be a journalist. Um, but for me, the distinction, I think, between journalism and filmmaking is, is mostly just a creative exercise. Um, I think um, a lot of journalistic forms are very strict and a little narrow for me in terms of the full range of expression that I want to bring to my storytelling. And so I've sort of found that um, filmmaking gave me a little more <laughs> room to run um, and uh, the ability to kind of paint with a little more colors. Not everything is so black and white that there can be nuance that you can add. Um, so that for me is where I see filmmaking being really exciting. And you know, this is just the beginning. Like I feel like there's so many more things that I wanna explore um, you know, beyond this kind of series and this kind of storytelling. But um, so for me, that's that's the distinction that filmmaking just feels um, like there's more places and room to experiment, I think, in terms of form. You actually um, were supposed to do the uh, production on making Black America uh, was was supposed to happen prior to the pandemic. And then or was it? No. Uh, so we the timeline is that we had finished um 
the previous series that this team worked on together, The Black Church, um, in February or early 2020. We had just finished that film and, you know, we were hearing that this next project was on deck. And so we started researching it in the, at the beginning of the pandemic. So like in April, that's first spring where nobody knew what was happening. We were just all inside, just reading um, a bunch of stuff. So we were researching the film at that time. And then, um, and then all the you know protests and the racial reckoning and all the stuff started happening in that summer that we were researching um, this film. And we were like, oh wow, this really gives this film like really important context and um, even more relevance and why it's so important for us to tell this kind of story so that people can understand that this these movements and these responses don't necessarily come from nowhere. Um, so, you know, we started production in late um, 2020, um, you know, before there were vaccines, before before anything, you know, people were still pretty isolated from each other when we started production in the late fall. So that was that was a little bit challenging, but um, I think we were able to come up with some creative solutions to kind of get around that. How do you go into making a documentary about these communities and have it be authentic without without overexposing? without overexposing them? Yeah, that's um, that's a consistent question that we get is like, do you feel like you're telling secrets <laughs> on this community by lifting the veil, um, so to speak? Um, and you know, what I think is really important about storytelling in general is that, like I said, it gives shading to people's stories. It adds layers. Um, and add some complexity and nuance. And so I think that's really what this series is doing. More than telling secrets, it's, um, it's actually revealing how um, just amazing this community is and has been throughout its history and is really uncovering like hidden heroes. You know, I think a lot of um, history in general is really focused on like who are the leaders and who are the great men and who are the you know the people that people are rallying around and I think what this series really does is kind of lift up the sort of like um, idea that like all of these voices are contributing to a really powerful song and so we want to um, highlight some of those voices that don't get heard that often aren't really spotlighted you know the one story that we keep sharing is like we, you know, this really pivotal moment in, in labor history is the Atlanta washerwomen's strike. You know, this is in at the end of reconstruction, but you know, these women are laborers. Most, we don't even know most of their names, but they brought Atlanta to its knees. And um, by unifying and by being um, together and saying, you know, we need to stand up for ourselves. And, um, I think those stories aren't really heard that often. And I think that's really just inspiring to hear those stories. And so I think that's um, the way we, we thought about our approach to this series was really doing that. I want to go to uh, one of the parts um, that I was able to, to view um, at the screening. And um, it talks about Harlem being a black metropolis. 
which I absolutely loved. And it also gets into, um, I don't want to tell everything, um, <laughs> but it get, it gets into how this black metropolis was essentially, was essentially um, converted, I guess you would say, in, into a ghetto because of, you know, racial covenants and, um, you know, the, the, the people in power did not like this, 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 this group, you know, like this, this black metropolis happening. Um, I feel like that happens in a lot of communities and has happened in a lot of communities, um, including Buffalo. And you mentioned, um, that you were bused to Olmstead, which, you know, was white, did you do in your upbringing? Did you did you feel like did you feel that way too? Like like that you were in a black metropolis growing up on the east side, and then it like slowly turned into um, you know <laughs> something else because of redlining and segregation. Right? No, it's it's so funny. I mean, it's yeah. That, I mean, that's a really good question. Um, I, yeah, I, I love that, that part of the series too, where we look at the sort of impact of redlining and segregation and how it creates, um, these communities, um, you know, that, that have negative sort of repercussions because these communities are under-resourced or they're crowded or, you know, people are being charged exorbitant rents and, um, you know, uh, what we talk about in the series, and then I'll get to my own experience, um, is that, you know, that sort of congestion and congregation, um, or segregation creates congregation in the sense that it actually creates this community. And, um, you know, they find really creative ways like rent parties and the numbers and these sort of informal economies to help support each other um, in those spaces. And so what I'll say about my own experience is just like, you know, all I knew growing up was a black world. Like I didn't know <laughs> anything else. So, um, you know, my day to day was, you know, my family and my neighborhood and the schools that I went to growing up. And I just, you know, going to Juneteenth at MLK Park and just like really existing in an all black world. So it, it wasn't a, something I questioned really until I started busing and going to the other side of the city and being like, oh my God, there are other people who live like completely other lives and they don't know about, <laughs> they don't know about Bidwis and they don't know about Juneteenth and they don't know about all of this stuff. Like that's kind of, that's kind of crazy. Um, so I think for me, it was like, wow, I didn't even know that that other world over there actually really existed. I mean, you see it on TV and you see it on this other stuff, but my sort of day-to-day -day was was not that. So you just kind of think that it's just like a TV kind of thing. Um, so, you know, being bused to that school was really, um, yeah, it was, it was really, it was really wild, I think is the only way I can sort of describe it now. I don't think I had language for it when I was a kid. I was just kind of like, whoa, this is a little bit weird, you know? Um, but like I said, I, I do think that my ability to kind of navigate that space really comes from like the confidence that I felt like I had coming from the place that I come from and coming from the family that I come from that like, I know who I am. I know that I have ability and, you know, going to these spaces, I'm able to, um, able to deal with it because of that. So, uh, 
one of the uh, parts in the documentary that I also was excited to see was the mayor of Newark, New Jersey, Ross Baraka. And I was like, Baraka, hmm, Baraka is so familiar. And then I found out that he is Amiri Baraka's son. And Amiri is the found, like a lot of people consider him one of the founders of the black arts movement. Does the does making Black America uh, touch on that community? Because we didn't see it during the screening. Yeah, no, but... we do. We do chapter um, episode four, which is the the episode that I directed, um, looks at um, sort of the post integration moment where you know we see uh, in a lot of ways we see these Black organizations and Black spaces and Black institutions sort of. Um, responding to segregation or Jim Crow or all of those things. And so our question was like, well, once legal segregation is over, do those things kind of disappear? Do we have a need for any of those spaces anymore? Because like we're we're part of the mainstream society. And um, so what we really found is that, you know, almost in the immediate aftermath of that, there is this assertion of like black aesthetic and black identity. And that that is not an accident that that assertion happens at that moment. And, you know, you have the Black Arts Movement, which is um, sharing aspects of that Black aesthetic through art and culture and poetry and literature and theater and, and all of those things. And Amiri Baraka of Newark, which is another, you know, chocolate city, um, really is at the vanguard of that and and not just on the art side you know he also is a major player in the national black political convention that happens in gary indiana which is something that i actually was a little surprised about like i didn't realize he was such a prominent figure in that thing and so we go into all of that in episode four to talk about the black arts movement the legacy of that um its emergence and why that's so important to the maintenance of this black perspective and like maintaining that um the black gaze on american society like how important that is um and so yeah and the and the fact that you know amiri baraka's son ross baraka who you know also has his own um notable career in poetry and rap and hip hop was, you know, prominently featured on the miseducation of Lauren Hill as a teacher, um, is now the mayor of Newark, is like clearly no accident as well, you know, that, that those legacies are now filtering into these political spaces and that he's bringing all of that with him into the mayor's office is, is, is amazing. Um, so to have him there at the table with Skip and all these other folks to kind of talk about this moment was just like really just incredible and so awesome. So you'll so the audience will see a lot of that in episode four, teasing out a lot of those ideas. And, you know, we also focus on figures like Toni Morrison, who her project is also about supporting the black aesthetic and centering the black gaze in her literature and you know supporting as an editor black women writers and um all of that stuff and so that that was really exciting for me to be able to focus on how powerful culture is in sort of um transmitting a lot of those ideas and and keeping that stuff alive in the community let's talk about the culture for one second because black twitter 
I that is like one of my favorite communities and it's a pretty recent a pretty new thing right with social media my question to you is how how like how cool or fun was it to to delve into that and also do you partake in black twitter i <laughs> i do not i'm a lurker on twitter and on social media in general so i'll just be upfront about that also i don't think i'm as fast quick-witted as people like by the time i get like something funny out like a million people have already said much funnier things so i'm like i should just i know my lane so i'll just stay out of it um but i the opportunity to incorporate black twitter was really really fun and and just so such a microcosm of like all the ways in which the black perspective on society is so necessary not only is it just incisive but it's really really funny and humor has a way of like kind of um what's the word um I can't I can't remember the word but uh, humor has a way of just kind of like making people let down their guard so that they can take in more information and so I think that's what's happening on black twitter that like the humor is just like so funny. But um, I also think that there's ways, and going back to this sort of journalism question, that there's ways that um, Black Twitter is a, a de- democratic approach to like getting Black stories covered. You know, I think about, you know, part of the thing that we focus on, not just in terms of the humor on Black Twitter, but also in terms of like movements around. Um, you know, police violence and all of that stuff, a lot of those stories gained traction on Twitter before they started becoming absorbed in the mainstream press. Um, certainly stories like, you know, Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and all of those really um, flourished on Twitter with like firsthand accounts of what was happening on the streets in Ferguson before, you know, mainstream cameras were even there to capture it. So that's another aspect of Twitter that we focus on is um, this way in which it is pushing the conversation. So with with Black Twitter, it's fun, but it's also it's also informative in in some of like like you mentioned, Trayvon Martin and in some of these cases, like the police brutality that the mainstream media wasn't picking up is 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 being on a mainstream platform because Black Twitter is talking about it. Yeah, I think that's true. And, um, you know, I think think that's really powerful. I mean, I think some of the criticism about Black Twitter, unfortunately, is that it's it's a Black space, but it's not Black-controlled, right? So Black Twitter is not... It's not Ebony Magazine, you know, which was a black publication that told black stories and centered black stories. And that was like run by, you know, uh, John H. Johnson, you know, a black businessman. Uh, Twitter is not that. And so um, there is a way that um, these sort of institutions in the contemporary space are like digitized and like, just like a different kind of network. Um, and so that that is a question about, is it still a black space if it's not black top to bottom? Um, and in some ways you could say that like Twitter is still, black Twitter is incredibly influential despite that. And so 
you know, it still um, is necessary um, despite that. What's next for Shayla Harris? So uh, the team that I just worked with on this series and who we also worked on um, with the Black Church are teaming up again. Um, I'm currently working on the history of gospel music and Black preaching. So we're sort of seeing it as a sequel to Black Church. Um, We're calling it Black Church the Musical. Um, So we're working on that. That's going to be another four-part series that's coming out um, next October. So stay tuned. Um, And so we're currently in production and in the edit on that. Um, and then, you know, there's so many other stories that I'm open to exploring, like I said, with all the colors and all the palettes. Um, that's just the first of many to come. Shayla Harris, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's such an awesome pleasure to talk to you. Up next, Dave Debo will be speaking with Caroline Harris, Associate Director of the Food Trust. They'll be speaking about the Food Equity Summit. Stay tuned to Buffalo What's Next. WNED PBS can go everywhere you go with the WNED PBS app. Go to the app to watch shows like Kleinhand's Gift to Buffalo, Frontline, and Compact Science. Even watch on the go with the WNED PBS live stream and a 24-7 stream of WNED PBS kids. You can also see the full television schedule and what's on right now from the app. Download the WNED PBS app wherever you get your apps. WBFO is your home for trusted news about your community. And WBFO The Bridge connects music and community. Hear local music from bands like Pharaoh from Buffalo, Tedesco Knows Best from Niagara Falls, and Stress Dolls from Buffalo every day on WBFO The Bridge. Listen at WBFO 88.7 HD2 or WNED 94.5 HD2 or stream it from WBFOTheBridge.org or the WBFO The Bridge mobile app. It's one thing to love public media, but it's a special thing to support it. Consider this. If you've got a car you don't need anymore, or you've got one that's simply too expensive to repair, arrange to donate it to Buffalo Toronto Public Media. It's easy for you, pickup is free, and it could be worth hundreds of dollars in support. Here's how to get started. Go to wned.org vehicles. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony has held the top spot in the WNED Classical Top 100 for two consecutive years. Is it time for it to be dethroned? You decide as we compile our ultimate playlist, the WNED Classical Top 100. Cast your vote at wned.org classical from September 19th through October 19th. Listen to WNED Classical beginning October 27th to hear your results. Who will reign in the 2022 WNED Classical Top 100? Hey there, WBFL listeners. Program Director Tom Barrett here. Thank you to everyone who donated during our fall pledge drive. WBFO is nothing without our loyal members. Knowing you're behind us means the world. But don't forget, if you happen to miss our pledge drive, you still have an opportunity to donate to this station your public radio news station by calling 1-877-456-8870 or going online at wbfo.org. Thank you so much. Support for WBFO, your NPR station, comes from our members. 
and from New Day Live, presenting Ray LaMontagne Saturday, November 5th at Shays Buffalo Theater for the Monovision Tour with special guest Lily Miola. Ticket information at shays.org or ticketmaster.com. Ray LaMontagne Live, Saturday, November 5th at Shays Buffalo. Support for WBFO is provided by SUNY Buffalo State. The Find Your Path to School Leadership Open House on Saturday, October 15th is for teachers interested in becoming certified in educational leadership. Information at schooloofeducation.buffalostate.edu. An extensive excavation of the Althorpe Estate uncovers significant British archaeological finds. Watch Secrets of the Dead tonight at 10 on WNED PBS. You are listening to Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Stick with us. Next up, Dave Debo talks with Caroline Harries of the Food Trust. This is WBFO. PBS Kids fun and educational content is available wherever you are in western New York, whenever you want. Live stream the channel at wned.org slash pbskids. And while you're there, you can play games, watch videos from your favorite shows like Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, Molly of Denali, and Alma's Way. And you'll find resources for parents and teachers. Visit wned.org slash pbskids today. Buffalo Toronto Public Media, in partnership with the BPO, is proud to present The Chevalier, written and directed by Bill Barclay. Join us at Kleinhans Music Hall, October 19th at 7.30 for this special theatrical concert conducted by Joanne Folletta. Experience the remarkable story of 18th century black composer Joseph Bologna, known as the Chevalier du Saint-Georges. Tickets and information at bpo.org slash the dash chevalier. The popular WNED PBS Our Town series is now on YouTube. Explore our region's towns through the eyes of community members who captured them on video beginning in 2003. Debuting this week is Our Town, Jamestown, featuring the Bust-Eye Cider Mill, the Lucille Ball Theater, the Skate Park, and so much more. Head to the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel to watch and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of Our Town. This is Buffalo What's Next where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO, or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is Dave Debo. For the balance of today's program, I'd like to talk a little bit about the fact that the effects of the top shooting continued to reverberate in part because that top's grocery store was the only grocery store within several miles. People have talked about this a lot. And yet just over the border to the east in Chictawaga, there are about three grocery stores within the same radius. It's part of that broader discussion about disinvestment on the east side. And it's a discussion that continues right now, too. Underway right now in the Seneca One Tower is a national summit on food equity. You've heard organizer Kevin Gaughan on the program earlier talking a little bit about what he hopes the conference will accomplish. People, more and more people like myself are recognizing that food access, it's a civil right. It's a human right. And it's now time to redress it. And I thought, what if... Buffalo led the way. Right. So the way we're going to try to uh, structure our conference is, first we'll have some national presenters, and that will include, um, uh, I found this magnificent entity this uh, 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 called the Food Trust. 
in Philadelphia, which also has a uh, a severe problem uh, in this regard. And uh, the uh, they're going to be represented, uh, and they're going to come and, and sort of give the national perspective. Mm-hmm. And with us now from that organization is Caroline Harries. She is the Associate Director of the National Campaign for Healthy Food Access at the Food Trust. Caroline, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Talk to me about how big of a problem this is nationwide, the whole idea of food equity, food deserts, or even food apartheid, as some people have called it. So the USDA estimates about 19 million people live in neighborhoods without access to fresh, affordable, and nutritious food options across the country. And we know that access to healthy food is is a human right. Families living in communities without healthy food options are therefore missing out on affordable access to nutritious food, as well as the economic opportunities like jobs brought by healthy food access. And you're coming to Buffalo as part of this forum to look at what could be done here, but also to address it, I guess, on, on a national scale. Correct. We, we know that and, and feel that grocery access is an important foundation in a community and a baseline from which other key programs can build, such as those that support affordability like SNAP, WIC, and nutrition incentives, as well as nutrition education programs and in-store marketing of healthy food. And, uh, you know, people living in areas without grocery stores and other venues with healthy food must rely on small neighborhood stores, which tend to sell limited healthy food options and food that can be both poor in quality and more expensive to rel- relative to supermarkets. What is mean the... multiple bus rides while carting groceries and children or scrambling to find someone with a car who's willing to drive to the nearest market. So we see that communities across the country have been affected by this issue and we're interested in a conversation to help elevate this issue and work towards solutions. What is the food trust? When I hear the word trust, I think, forgive me, of finances. Do you subsidize projects that end up solving the, the problem? We are a nonprofit uh organization that's based in Philadelphia, and our mission is to ensure delicious, nutritious food for all. And we do that in a variety of ways. We work to support uh, and increase access to healthy food through multiple venues, such as uh, farmers markets, grocery stores, healthy corner stores. We work to promote affordability of food through the support of programs like the SNAP program and nutrition incentives. And we also work to connect to nutrition education resources. Tell me what works. I know Philadelphia has had a lot of different scenarios. Uh, I remember President Obama's State of the Union address where one of your grocers was singled out. And I've seen that there are initiatives all over the country as well. Um, what, of, of all the things that you've seen, is there something that really could be used pretty much anywhere, including here in Buffalo? In many states and at the federal level, there are public-private programs called Healthy Food Financing Initiatives. These programs are designed to support healthy food retailers in low to moderate income and under-resourced communities through financing and technical assistance. And so part of our goal with these programs is to get the government to invest in this issue of healthy food access, to recognize healthy food access as a right and to think of healthy food access as an important community infrastructure. So when government and other partners are developing roads and buildings and houses, we also want to think about where people can access healthy food. So these healthy food financing initiatives provide um, funding, typically uh, as grants and loans, uh, to healthy, qualifying healthy food retailers in low to moderate income, under-resourced communities, both urban and rural essentially bolstering the healthy food infrastructure in these communities. 
All right. I, I have to pick at one of your words there, qualifying healthy food distributors. What does that mean? Qualifying healthy food retailers. And so that can be a grocery store. It could be a farmer's market. It could be a healthy corner store. Typically, programs look to ensure that projects are increasing access to healthy food and what would be considered an underserved or under-resourced community, um, that that community is low to moderate income, and also that there is community support for the project. Locally, we have two uh, projects underway. One of them is an urban garden, and the other is a food co-op program. Uh, without knowing the, all the complete details, that's the kind of stuff that would fit this program, correct? Particularly the co-op and, and, and projects with a, a retail component, projects that can accept SNAP um, and other benefits to the purchase of, of healthy food. In the communities where they've been able to, to some degree, perhaps conquer this issue, is there a common theme? Uh, does does what Philadelphia do and what, I don't know, theoretically Chicago does um, point to certain things that have to be in place, or, or is it not necessarily a one-size-fit-all? We've seen that partnerships are really critical to the success of efforts to improve access to healthy food, in large part because a variety of perspectives can help inform solutions and make them stronger and more sustainable. We also hear that financing is key, in particular offering grants as an incentive, uh, in addition to loans. And then pairing financing with technical assistance and business supports is also critical for things like business development, marketing and outreach, sourcing produce, equipment purchasing, such as refrigeration and other infrastructure supports. And we, we know that community perspective and voice is critical to understanding the need in communities and to crafting sustainable solutions that address that need. Uh, you know, by doing something so simple as talking to the people who would be affected by the change to learn what people need, but also what they have to offer in addressing the solution. And then finally, we know that a comprehensive approach that includes increasing access to healthy food in multiple venues, promoting affordability and supporting nutrition education efforts will have a greater impact than any of these efforts on their own. As you know, uh, the the entire premise, not only for the conference but uh, for the discussion, is that in the area around the May 14th shooting that happened at a grocery store, it is the only grocery store. Um, Several people I've talked to say that uh, they're still grieving. Some have said they would never even go back to that store. When you start to work with communities, do you work on those issues, or is it strictly just a matter of, providing another alternative to the place that they don't necessarily want to go to? I think the community's perspective on what's going to work in a particular area is the most important factor. And so what we know is that when uh, supporting projects, it's really important to understand what community residents will support and want to see in their community um, that resident perspective is, is invaluable and really critical to the sustainability of, of any healthy food retail project supported. Kevin Gaughan, the organizer of uh, today's conference, has referred to you almost as the keynote speaker. Uh, what, what is it that you're going to say? Can you give me a little bit of a preview? Well, I'm going to start by talking about the, nas- the issue nationally. It is an issue that affects communities across the country to provide some context. And then I'll talk about why the food environment is so important. You know, where you can live can impact your diet and health. But grocery stores are more than just places to get food in communities. They're important gathering spaces that promote social connectedness, and they can help anchor other businesses in the community as well. And so 
I'll highlight uh, the importance of grocery access as a foundation in a community. And, and then I'll talk a little bit about some recent um, national attention that the issue has received. I was in D.C. last week for the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health, and it was really inspiring to hear the federal government recognize this issue and, and commit to this issue. This was the first conference of its kind in 50 years. And then I will share what we've seen has worked across the country in terms of supporting grocery stores and other healthy food retail projects in communities across the country. A lot of what this conference is, is bringing together people with capital and people with ideas. Do you see it doing something on the ground in the Buffalo neighborhood, or do you see it more as a a symposium to discuss the issue broadly? I think there's a lot of work already happening on the ground in Buffalo, and I hope that it will bolster those efforts that are um, already taking place. And I do think hopefully it will bring additional interest and investment in those existing efforts to help catalyze what's already underway. I want to go back to what you said you'd have in the speech, and you mentioned earlier, too. Some of the solutions that you've seen elsewhere, do they all really just boil down to community input, interest, and then the money to drive whatever idea comes out of the community? I think that's the key takeaway. Absolutely. I think that's the key takeaway with a framework of understanding there's no silver bullet, that a comprehensive approach is really what makes a difference that uh, we see communities thrive when there are multiple points of access, again, from grocery stores to farmers markets to healthy corner stores, so that the healthy choice is the easy choice. And where you're also promoting affordability for programs through programs like nutrition incentives and the SNAP program, and then connecting to educational, nutrition educational resources as well. One of the people you'll be sharing the dais with is Alexander Wright. He's uh, with the local African American Food Co op. And he takes offense. He bristles when people say uh, this is a food desert. He says, no, it's food apartheid. Food desert's a misnomer. Um, is Hiroshima a desert? No, it was purposely bombed. What we're facing in Buffalo is food apartheid, all right? When white flight took place um, in the 50s, 60s, 70s in Buffalo, so did all the resources, so did the banks, so did the... Um, the grocery stores, okay? So that was purposely done, right? So, so and that created the situation that we're in right now. When we say food desert, a desert is something that occurs naturally. It happens, right? And, and I think that people want to say food desert because it makes them feel better. And, oh, okay, this is a cute little uh, turn of phrase that we can use. Nah, this is food apartheid. And it was purposely done to my community, and that's why um, my community needs to be the head of, in charge of, um, in control of its resurgence. In your solutions, do you look at causes or is that a separate discussion? We avoid the term food desert because of its negative connotation, which ignores the many opportunities and resources that exist in these communities. And also because it characterizes the situation as naturally occurring rather than the result of systemic uh, practices such as redlining that have caused disinvestment and a subsequent lack of grocery access. So I agree with Alexander as well in in his characterization of the situation. And and the issue cannot then be looked at without putting it through a racial equity lens, no? Absolutely. 
How do we broach that topic? Uh, getting a new grocery store to some degree uh, would be treating a symptom maybe, but not necessarily the disease. Do you agree? I agree. I think we have to take a step back and understand all the practices, again, such as redlining that have caused the disinvestment in communities and um, work towards solutions that acknowledge and, um, you know, you know, work to um, create opportunities with, you know, understanding that context. Give me a prediction. Six months down the road, will we have a difference or does it take longer than that? It's a long game. I, I think we'll see some incremental uh, successes. And I think this is a really important stepping stone, this convening, uh, having the conversation, understanding what work is taking place on the ground, connecting silos, um, working towards a shared vision and understanding what that vision is. But uh, it, it will, you know, again, it's a long game. It, it will take um concerted effort over a long period of time to really make a difference on this issue. You spoke toward the beginning of the conversation about the role of federal government and that there was, yes, a, a recent summit at the White House on this. Do you see movement? Do you see something actually concrete coming out of, if not the White House, Congress? I think the Farm Bill is an incredible opportunity. We've seen the USDA really committing to this issue in recent years. I think there's a sea change. I think we're witnessing a sea change across the country in terms of how people think and, and feel about food and its importance to our health and vitality. Uh, I think the fact that the White House um, convened this conference is, is a strong indication of that. And I think we need to make sure that the momentum continues and that healthy food access is a priority when we are um, supporting the development, the equitable development of communities. And my last question is one where I think I know the answer. You probably wouldn't be doing this work if if it uh, didn't inspire you. Are you optimistic? Cautiously optimistic. I've been at the Food Trust for 15 years, and, um, you know, the, the moment now with the White House recognition and, su and support of this issue is really, I think, an important moment. And I think that um, COVID-19 really made it clear just how important grocers are to a community, um, how important access to healthy food is to a community. And then in particular, when we became more vulnerable to COVID-19 with, with diet-related diseases. So I do feel cautiously optimistic. I think this is a moment and I hope um, that we can continue to focus and have these conversations and work towards solutions for communities across the country and in Buffalo. And the national conversation, you, you'd say, is a, a step towards that. Uh, the, the analogy I'm thinking of is you meet people you have not seen in a long time at a funeral, and the first thing you say is, if only we didn't have to meet under these circumstances. Um, is there progress to come out of the shooting? Does this national conversation lead somewhere? I absolutely think that this convening in Buffalo is a first step towards understanding all the work that's taking place in Buffalo to recognize recognizing the issues um, and, and, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic could lead to progress in bolstering the efforts underway on the ground and to working towards additional support and solutions for the community. All right, Caroline, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Dave, and take care. 
Caroline Harries is the Associate Director of the National Campaign for Healthy Food Access at the Food Trust. She's the keynote speaker at today's National Food Equity Conference underway right now at the Seneca One Tower. She spoke with us earlier this week. Earlier in the program, Angelie Preston spoke with Shayla Harris. Both of these interviews will be available on demand later today at WBFO.org. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening.